Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, as part of our guest host series, hosted by lawyer turned fifth grade school teacher turned talent development teacher turned 18th century docent Janet Wade, who happens to be married to me, your regular host, Landis Wade, we visit with Bob Deans, author of The Bicycle Man, a novel that allows the reader to experience the emotional and turbulent headlines of 1968 as seen through the eyes of a young paperboy. Bob Dean started out in the news business when he was 10 years old, delivering his hometown paper, the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He spent three decades as a reporter for the Post and Courier of Charleston, South Carolina, and the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, including four years as chief Asia correspondent based in Tokyo, and eight years covering the White House, and he's a former president of the White House Correspondents Association. Major Garrett, chief Washington correspondent, CBS News, says of the book, Lyrical, lustrous, and tender. Dean is a craftsman, and the words here flow with certainty, truth, and ache, taking us into the promise, discovery, and heart of a boy as the world outside both marches forward and encroaches on his own. A beautiful and captivating story. Now, listeners, today we're recording on Martin Luther King Day, which is uh, fitting given the topics explored in this book, uh, but it's going to come out in April. 
as our 201st episode. And, and also, it's only fitting that Janet had to put up with my obsession to record the first 200, that she gets a chance to be the one speaking in the 201st episode. I'm going to turn it over to her now. I, I, I want to tell you, listeners, Janet read the book. I listened to the audiobooks. We got two perspectives here we're going to talk about. I'm going to let her take it over, uh, and, and I want to let you know that we're going to be doing a little Patreon episode with Bob as well, and I'll tell you about that as we get toward the uh, end of the show. But for now, I'm handing over the uh, audio range to Janet to, to welcome Bob and take it away. Thank you, Landis, and thank you, Bob, for joining us today in all our various locations. I have to say that this is a really different experience for me because most of the time, you know, Landis is the one conducting the interview of a wonderful author and I'm just listening or he recommends books to me for authors who've been on his show. And that's the total opposite of today, because not only am I conducting the interview, but I also had the great privilege of recommending your book to him after my book club read it in September, and you were able to join us via Zoom for, for that meeting. And I just have to say, I absolutely fell in love with it and couldn't wait to get it out there um, to other people. So thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Thank you, Janet. It's a, it's a real treat to be here on this historic 201st episode, your bicentennial plus one, and to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, as Landis mentioned in your bio, and this is just the first thing I kind of wanted to explore, you have a very, very long history in journalism and with newspapers, and that is somewhat reflected um, in the content of this because it's about Sandy, a, a paper boy. Um, has it been years in the formation of turning your journalistic career into a novel? I, I guess so, Janet, and years, most of which I had no earthly idea was leading to this. But um, I did fall in love with newspapers as a boy, reading these headlines by the light of a passing milk truck or a waning moon. And I, I just uh, thought to myself, you know, these reporters were like minor gods to me. You know, they were... Um, utterly remote. They were omniscient. They were thoroughly self-directed and nobody ever seemed to actually know any of them. And I thought, you know, I want to be one of those guys. And so fortunately for about 30 years, I was able to do that. And um, it was everything I dreamed of as a boy and then some. And to this, this story just sort of occurred to me over time, uh, as I would ride my bicycle back and forth to, my, to the Washington Bureau when I was covering the White House, covering Congress, covering the State Department, covering the Pentagon. And um, so it, it was sort of years in the gelling. So it sounds like bicycles have been really important to you from the very beginning as a paper boy to your time in Washington. Is it a hobby? Is it just something you enjoy doing? Um, why bicycles? You know, Janet, I was I was riding the other morning up, and I have this beautiful route that I I ride along the old CNO Canal by the Potomac River. And I was riding the other day, and I it was early in the morning, and the sun was coming up behind me, and I saw my shadow uh, on the bike path there. And I had this moment of thinking, I'm still ten years old, and uh, there I am chasing my shadow on my bicycle. Of course. I'm far from 10 years old, but that that part has has stayed with me. And I remember the first bicycle my father brought home. He'd bought 
secondhand from one of his co-workers' sons who had outgrown it for $6. And from that moment, the bicycle represented independence and mobility and freedom. And I, I guess in some sense, it still does. Well, and since you mentioned your bicycle, I wanted to talk about the cover a little bit because as our listeners will be able to see in the show notes, the cover is a bicycle. It's just a bicycle with a bag of newspapers in the basket. Was that your bicycle growing up? Pretty much. Um, I I have to credit um, in-house design uh, staff here. My wife, uh, did that wonderful illustration for me, and um, I did ask it asked that it be this way, and and used an old Huffy bicycle, which was uh, what what I rode. Many of your listeners will, will remember those bikes. Um, but yeah, the the bicycle when you added the basket and then the canvas bag and the newspapers, it was a whole world. It was more than independence. It was more than mobility. It was more than freedom. It was a world that was removed from teachers, parents, coaches. It was a world where you created your own um, sort of hierarchy, those those great paper boys you wanted to be like, the district manager who could impose authority on you, and the sort of will of a darkened road that was empty, but for you and your bike and your papers. That's really wonderful. And then I wanted to ask about the the title, too, because we all have that image of the vapor boy on his bicycle in the early morning, but the title of your book is The Bicycle Man, and yet your protagonist, Sandy Rivers, is a boy. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that sort of juxtaposition. Sure. Well, it's a boy who's uh, 13 when the book begins, 14 when it ends, and it's a boy who's thinking constantly about what it means to become a man. And one of the role models for him becomes a an unusual role model for uh, the time and the moment, but it was this elderly man who was riding around on a somewhat ramshackled bicycle, and he just kind of appears in the pre-dawn darkness from time to time, but he appears in meaningful and important ways that become formative for this boy, and it opens up a whole new piece of the world through through the perspective of a different individual. Well, I want to share just a a brief summary of the book with our listeners before we get into your reading, just to sort of set it up so that they know where we're headed. Um, And the summary says that for Sandy Rivers, the known world is the suburban landscape of his morning paper route, an intimate, if unsteady place where comfort, illusion, sanctuary, and myth are shattered by daily headlines that chronicle a country torn by Vietnam, civil rights, and the struggle for national purpose. It's the spring of 1968. Belief in American providence is clashing with the limits of American might. During the breathtaking year, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is killed in Memphis. Robert Kennedy is shot in L.A. Richard Nixon goes to the White House and Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. For a heartland community of aging Buicks, Loblolly Pines on the outskirts of Richmond, Virginia, the racial fault line is a bamboo grove at the edge of a honeysuckle swamp. The contest for the soul of the nation plays itself out in Sunday sermons and over lingering suppers of hot biscuits and slaw. 
and the messenger for national promise and peril is Sandy, who delivers the news, the good and the bad, on a mission he takes on each day before dawn. And then it goes on to talk a little bit about the experiences that Sandy will have. And, and I love that summary because it sets up so many of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, so with that kind of introduction to it, Bob, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to read for us a little bit from the beginning of the book, from the very first chapter there. Sure. Um, thanks so much, Janet. And thanks for that um, introduction. I do think that it, the way you read it, it, it really captures this contrast between this boy who has this intimate familiarity with this tiny little world, which is the landscape of his paper route, and no understanding at all of the larger world. And he's only beginning to grasp it through the headlines. And the bicycle man helps him to make sense of it all. Chapter one. Starlight sifted through the canopy of pines beyond Sandy's open window and fell like the dust of silver across the bed where he lay sleeping. A tattered set of blinds chattered softly in the April breeze. The alarm clock sounded from his nightstand. Sandy threw his arm across his sheets and groped in the darkness. I win, he groaned, heaving out the first deep breath of the day and rolling his legs over the side of the bed. If... That's what you call winning. He turned on the lamp and squinted. 5 a.m. He pulled on his jeans, tied his sneakers, and scanned the room. There you are, he whispered, rising in to grab a pair of wire cutters from atop his bookcase. He flicked off the lamp, stole quietly down the hallway, and walked out of his family's house on a hill above the tarred and graveled lane. Morning air, cool and moist, washed over his face. Walking down the front steps, he saw the mist of his breath against the delicate points of a crescent moon slung low in the western sky. At the base of a broad fir tree, nestled in a bed of needles, his bicycle lay on its side. It was red where it wasn't rusted, and a trace of moonlight shimmered off the large wire basket he'd bought at the Broad Street Pep Boys the Saturday before. He'd spent much of Sunday bolting it to his handlebars, adjusting its height and pitch before taking over his newspaper route. Sandy lifted his steed of spokes and steel, sat on the dew-covered seat, and felt the chill move through his body. He coasted down the slope onto the street and into the perfect emptiness the night left behind. His world lay shuttered and sleeping. The soft whir of his wheels was all he heard as he glided past darkened lawns, somnolent Chevys, Buicks, and Fords, and the silent suburban forms of ditches, driveways, and shrubs. Rising onto his pedals to meet the grade of the road, Sandy began to sing to himself. And when I see the sign that points one way, he leaned right into a bend in the road and looked up toward a pale lamp on a creosoted pole at the top of the long hill ahead. He stood hard on his pedals and felt his chest open. Just walk away, Renee, you won't see me follow you back home. Breathing heavily at the crest, he wheeled left onto the rolling blacktop of Misty Hollow Road. He glanced over his shoulder toward a plank fence 
its warped and wooden shoulders slouching along the thinly forested border of a broad field of wild grass and cane. He coasted past a vacant, clabbered building that once housed a one-room sewing shop. He remembered standing there as a child, on dusty wooden floors, while his mother searched through bolts of brightly colored fabric, endless spools of thread, and files of patterns printed on thin paper that crinkled like music when she unfolded them to see hairline sketches of summer shifts and pleated skirts. The time-weathered little building held down a triangular lot wedged inside a yawning fork, where Misty Hollow merged into Ridgetop Road, a serpentine ribbon of asphalt skirting the gentle crest of a hill that rose from the north bank of the Great River several miles away. As he rolled through the quiet junction, Sandy felt the pavement flatten. Two lanes stretched out before him toward a distant traffic light, then disappeared into the soft and frayed edges of darkness beyond. To Sandy's right and just back from the road, three small brick houses lined a dirt driveway that crossed a narrow ditch. Large stones, half buried and painted white, marked common ground connecting a cluster of homes lit by a single bulb that dangled bare from an ancient oak. Sandy instinctively wondered whether Old Blue was tied up to the tree so he couldn't sprint out after cars and paper boys. He didn't see the dog anywhere, a momentarily worrisome thought, even if folks' heads stopped calling him Big Blue since he slowed with age and picked up a slight limp. Sandy veered left and felt his wheels drop onto the hard scrabble surface of the paper stop, a vacant lot with a large wire mesh trash can under a telephone pole. A single street lamp cast a pale and faintly pulsing light upon the wood-strut carcass of a summer vegetable stand. A torn and faded sheet of canvas, gone the reddish-brown hue of the dirt, sagged over empty bins like the windless sail of some phantom ship adrift on a sea of clay. It was on that patch of unwanted land, sandwiched between the First Methodist Church of Tuckahoe and the Sinclair gas station, where the papers arrived each morning. Sometime between 4.30 and 5, a wrinkled but sturdy old man pulled up in a white step van with Richmond Times Daily painted across it, slung open a wide door, and heaved out bundles, each wrapped in brown craft paper and bound with a single strand of silvery wire. Sandy leaned his bike against the telephone pole and searched in the dim light for the bundle with an envelope that read F-45. He ran his thumb down the smooth, straight spines of freshly printed newspapers, counting softly to himself, one for each of the 88 customers on his route. In the soft lamplight, he saw the front page, its crisp black letters chiseled into newsprint. Richmond Times Daily, it read in bold cloister type, largest morning circulation in Virginia. Sandy strained to read the dateline. Thursday, April 4, 1968. Thank you so much. And I wanted to stop there um, for two reasons. And one is I think about it today. We are recording on Martin Luther King Day. And um, this is such a turbulent time in the history of our country and right around the time of King's assassination. Um, and what I'm struck by more than anything 
with this date and as the the story unfolds are the parallels between 1968 and some of the things our country is experiencing um, today. And you bring up a lot of these events in the course of the book that, um, including unrest and disillusionment, marginalization of some groups, um, immigration, the distrust of government, a rapidly changing culture. And I just, I just wonder, did you plan this or was it kind of accidental that you chose 1968 and it ended up being such a timely reflection on where we are? I think it's the latter, Janet, and you put it very well. I chose 1968 because like almost no other chapter in our history, the country went through so many changes. We were dealing with war in Vietnam. We were dealing with the struggle for civil rights and a search for national purpose, really. And so it echoed the adolescence of the nation, had an echo in the experiences of a young boy experiencing his first job, his first love, um, just trying to find his way in this world. Uh, But there is no way I could have imagined when I began writing this 12 years ago that that here we would be, um, that we would be in a place um, where we would still be struggling so much uh, with race at the center of our of our national journey, still struggling for equity, still struggling for justice. And it, it turned out to be, I think, a story for our time because the story is ultimately about community, communing with each other as human beings and unifying around the values and aspirations and interests that we share. And I think what got us through 1968 as a nation was exactly that, that despite all that divided us, we never lost sight and our leaders never lost sight of those things that we shared and those things we had to work toward. And it it had echoes this year when we uh, went through the wrenching deaths of of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery and so many others. But what was encouraging is that rather than shrugging and saying, well, gee, isn't that too bad? Our hearts are broken. We rallied as a nation. In the weeks after George Floyd's death, we had um, demonstrations in more than 2,500 places around this country, cities like Charlotte, cities like Richmond, like Atlanta, and, and even small rural hamlets. Something like 20 million people came out in those initial weeks to say, you know what? We can't go on like this. We can't continue with racial injustice and brutality and inequity. We have got to do better as a nation. And it changed us as a nation. Um, And I think, you know, the great promise of our democracy is that it gives us a chance to gather around the, the will of the majority, the judgment of the whole and the collective genius of the nation so that we can work for justice and equity, so that we can build that place where every vote counts, every voice is heard, and and we the people are truly sovereign. That journey is as much a vital piece of who we are as a country today as it was in 1968. And we have an opportunity for renewal, and we've got to take that opportunity and move forward. Well, and I love that you use the word community and all these different people from different places, because within the book, it's not just the time of 1968, but it is also really 
the place and the contrast between the two sides of the suburban community in which Sandy lives. And also, you do a great job of contrasting that suburban community with a larger city like Richmond. And certainly Richmond wasn't as large then as it is now, but you still had that kind of um, conflict between those different areas. And I wanted to know if you would talk to us just a little bit about those different aspects of the community, the larger community and the smaller communities. Yes, well, um, Hill and Hamlet, which is the community where Sandy, Sandy delivers his papers, is symbolic of a um, of a changing South, where um, once rural areas are becoming suburban, and they're being intentionally designed to protect white people from black people. And um, in this instance, you have a bamboo grove that is literally meant to be a sort of natural demarcation line between a, um, a black community and a new white residential area. But through that bamboo grove develops a footpath and it becomes symbolic of the connection that we try to make as people and how that connection can triumph over the divisions we create as a society if we make up our minds that we're going to cross over those divisions. And that can be um, anger, hatred, ignorance, fear, or a bamboo grove. And as it happens, um, that passage becomes central to Sandy's understanding of a different piece of the world because it it travels through a cemetery, it travels through a honeysuckle swamp, it travels through a churchyard, and these things hold history, they hold folklore, they hold stories, and they hold a natural wonder that all combines into some rich and deep meaning for Sandy that imbues the landscape that he's on every day with this idea that we can be connected as people and somehow we have to find our way to do that. Well, and it's not just the bamboo forest and the honeysuckle path and the natural world that you bring into this story in such a wonderful way, but um, you talk about so many aspects of the natural world. Uh, so are you an outdoorsman? Do you um, enjoy spending time in the natural world? Is that why it was so important to you to add these elements to the story? Yeah, very much so, Janet. And, that, you know, my dad always took me out from the time I, you know, my really my earliest memory is fishing with my father along a, a small creek with a Indian name in Virginia. And I grew up in going out into the rivers and the lakes and uh, in the woods and the fields. And so as a paper boy, uh, Sandy is always outdoors. He is outdoors in the winter when it's cold. And he, he contrasts that with the feel of a fire, the warmth of a fire, even if he's burning someone else's newspaper at the paper stop. And he's experiencing the rain and the heat and the dust and uh, the air and the stars and the moon. And all of this is part of a great spiritual world that he inhabits and it means something to him, and um, it frightens him at times. Um, he can be in the dark and hear a sound, and, and he's scared. He feels threatened. 
uh, and he reaches back to things that he can believe in, things that he can hold on to, uh, to, to get him through that kind of thing. And so the natural world is central to this story. Well, and not just all the different aspects of the natural world that inform Sandy and his growth, but you also have so many wonderful other characters in the book. And one of the things that I really appreciated about it was that all of these characters are different. And the people that Sandy encounters on his paper route are all different. So that even within this little hill and hamlet community we see the the diversity of people who are some of your um favorite characters that sandy comes in contact with on his paper route gosh what a great question janet and i i think that you know what i what i'd hoped would come of this was the sense that you know we in the south like anybody else are not monolithic we are a a amalgamation of a great group of characters. Some of us um, bring our best to the story and some of us don't. And um, I wanted to try to show that variety and what better way than to bring these characters that were along the, along the paper route. And so, I, you know, I love old man Sullivan who, um, you know, the myth among the boys is that he's this terrible, hard guy who's always armed and, uh, you know, is, is, is ginning up a still in his basement. And in fact, he's this very dear soul who's, mourning the, the loss of his long-term wife and finding solace by making birds out of cork and feathers down in his basement. Um, uh, of course, you know, the bicycle man himself um, is, is inspiring on so many levels, uh, even though he is himself a struggling human being. Um, and of course, um, Winston, you know, the, the district manager is, you know, probably the most, uh, you know, powerful uh, image that Sandy is dealing with, a powerful persona as he's trying to develop. But the person who shapes him or, you know, who the person who weighs in his heart the most is Hope. And, um, you know, this is his girlfriend that he meets randomly at a uh, ill-fated cotillion session and uh, just seems to continue uh, to stumble into in a way where he's he thinks she's his friend and he doesn't realize that he's completely lost in trying to keep up with this uh, young girl who just always seems to be a couple steps ahead of him in every respect. Well, I, um, I love the way you mentioned the cotillion because it's one of those scenes in the book that just really captured us. And for me, um, especially, there were so many of those in part because of our personal experience. Um, our children did cotillion. Um, one loved it, one hated it. But, you know, we we recognize those stories. For me, one of your most powerfully descriptive sections was when Sandy leaves that cotillion dance and finds his way into the print shop um, at the Richmond Daily Times because my father was in religious journalism for his professional career. And I have very vivid memories as a young child being in that print shop, hearing the pounding as it rolled out page after page. And what I, I wondered about with this is, you know, and your work has been called lyrical and 
And the, it, the imagery is so rich and the words are so wonderful. But Bob, you're trained as a journalist. That's kind of cut and dry kind of stuff. And your other books are nonfiction. Um, have you been saving all these wonderful <laughs> pictures for our minds and all these wonderful words for years till you could use them? That's so nice of you to say. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, I, I cut... I had to do a lot of cutting from that section because I got a little carried away with the um, with the romance. And once you've been into a news, uh, the the print shop of a newspaper, as I as that um, story is recalled, everything from the smell of the ink to the sound of the presses and the heat of the of the forge, it's melting the lead so it can be reused. All of that stays with you forever. And um, you know, I. I originally wrote this book. It was about 144,000 words, and I gave it to uh, Kelly Justice, who runs the wonderful Fountain Bookstore in Richmond. And she took a look at it and told me, you know, it's it's okay, but you really got to cut it. And so I cut about 50,000 words out of it. And um, I think the readers are are very grateful to Kelly for that. Um, <laughs> so, but I think I I try to look at description as a way to bring the reader a little bit closer to the stage a little bit closer to um, the setting, a little bit closer to the characters and what they're feeling, and um, and then no more. And it's it's hard. I, you know, I, everybody will make up their decisions whether I overdid it in places or or didn't, but that's, that's part of the balance that you try to strike. I'm going to jump back in, and uh, Janice can have one last question. I'm going to give her time to think about what that is. But uh, listeners, I want to tell you, we could go on and on. Uh, it was such a great book. Janet and I don't always agree on what we like to read, but uh, we both <laughs> really resonated with this book. Uh, as I said, she read it. I listened to it on audiobook, and there's a great narrator uh, of this uh, audiobook that Bob found. I don't know where he found him, but uh, just really brings to life the. He can sing too, by the way. The <laughs> the narrator can, and there's a lot of music in this book as well. But listeners, what we're going to do is in just a moment, we're going to jump over to Patreon. Uh, we're going to have a talk about. Uh, uh, symbolism, metaphors. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the kind of lyrical scenes that come to life in this book uh, and how to work that into your own writing. Uh, that's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. You can check us out there or go to the website. But uh, I, since I read the book and I'm not doing the interview, I'm going to probably lose my job to Janet. She's done such a good job today. I want to ask one question and then I'm going to give Janet the last question. But Bob, you know, I sometimes ask this question of authors and that is, uh, you know, characters are often searching for something. You know, they're they're on a quest. Sandy was on a quest in this book. The Bicycle Man was on a quest. Winston was on a quest. What quest were you on when you were writing this book? Hmm. That's a very good question. I think I wanted somehow to tell this story in a way that my son might read it one day and reflect on the world that his father grew up in as a piece of what formed us as a nation, a piece of the world that he inherited. And, um, you know, when you write a novel, there's no certainty it's going to be published. There's no certainty anybody's going to read it. And uh, when it became obvious to me, it was going to take quite a bit of time to do this, time away from my family and and, and time away from other things, I, I spent about three days asking myself, am I really 
you know, do I really want to do this? And I thought, well, if one person reads it, if my son reads it one day, even when he's 40 years old, it'll be worth it. So that's, I think, what was driving me. My last question is, is there another quest? Do you have another novel in you? Because I can't wait to read it. It won't just be for your son. It'll be me. Can we keep our fingers crossed for something else? Janet, that's such a great such great of you to say that. Um, I have some other ideas and, and I'm working on some other projects and we'll see what pans out. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, it's been gratifying the way people have received the book. Um, people like yourself um, who have found something in it that resonates with the way you grew up and the way you've experienced life. And, and, and so it's been extremely gratifying, deeply gratifying. Um, of course, it's been a time when you'd like to get around and talk to more people in person and you haven't been able to do that. And so uh, we'll just see what pans out, but I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to see Sandy continue on and I'd like to revisit Sandy um, in, in his uh, early thirties where the book opens up. Well, Bob, we want to um, thank you for being on the show. One of the reasons that the book resonated with me is I was one of those young paper boys and I do remember the quiet and the dark and the night. And uh, once, one snowy morning where I'm rounding the turn and I slip and slide and all the papers come out of the basket and end up <laughs> in the ditch. So uh, I resonated with that scene in the book, I have to tell you. But, but Bob, I want to thank you so much for being a, a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Thanks so much, Landis, and thank you so much, Janet. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City Podcast Network.com.